Well, take your Bible this afternoon and join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 10. Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. And with God's help, if you would give your attention to the reading of his word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to, your, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears me, who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The end of chapter nine has Christ spelling out the cost of discipleship to his disciples, the cost of following him. He says that that disciples must be prepared to follow him sacrificially. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have, have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To unite yourself to Christ in faith and obedience is to have no place in the world. No place of abiding spiritual rest. Of course, Christ laid his physical head down and he had times where he slept, but he wasn't at home in the world and he wasn't received by the world. He was rejected by the world. The same is true for us. Following Christ means living as pilgrims. It means living as exiles, aliens, and strangers, those who aren't at home in the world, those who aren't welcome here precisely because we are aliens and strangers, precisely because our citizenship is in heaven. He calls them to follow him, not only sacrificially, but firstly, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the, king, the kingdom of God. Uh, following Jesus means seeing him take first place in your life. Cutting ties with the world. Understanding what your priorities are as a disciple, what your priorities are as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, his representative, understanding uh, just as a soldier would setting out to war, uh, what your commission, in this case, your divine commission is and how it outweighs all other earthly duties. And then he says that it's to follow him single-mindedly. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Have no other rivals. In terms of where your loyalties and your allegiances lay with relationship to the son of God, let your love for him, your devotion to his cause be altogether unalloyed. Love him first and only. So there is a real cost associated with following the Lord Jesus and with being counted as one of his own. Now, with that established, Jesus goes on to appoint 72 other disciples in addition to those 12 apostles, and he sends them into all of the towns and places he's about to go. So having steeled their hearts and minds with the cost, uh, having called for their, their strong, undivided resolve, now he offers them this great point of encouragement as they set forth. What does he say? The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Isn't that good news? As you think about going out on Christ's 
behalf. This is glorious, blessed news. God has not called us to go out and to labor in vain, brothers and sisters. The harvest is plentiful. And of course, when we talk about the harvest, we're talking about a harvest of souls. And we're talking about souls that will never die. The harvest of souls is plentiful, and we ought to take great encouragement in that. As the people of God, fields have been prepared for us to labor in. The fields are white for harvest, despite our frequent assertions to the contrary. I wonder if you have ever found your fearful flesh looking out surveying your surroundings, just looking at things with with natural eyes and making confessions like this. There is no harvest to be reaped. You look out at the fields that God has called you to labor in and, and you begin to think to yourself, no, everything is burnt over and ashen here. There's nothing but tares left. That's not what the word of God speaks to us. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. We have Christ assurance. There is a plentiful harvest ripe for picking. And in fact, the appointment of the 72 helps us to see the great need of the hour. What is the great need? The laborers are few. The laborers are few. So plentiful is that harvest that Christ has now multiplied uh, the number that he has appointed to his missionary work seven times over with the addition of the 72. Now that, that expansion helps to expand the horizon. It helps to prepare the way for a, a missionary enterprise that is eventually going to go far beyond the land of the Jews. But even still here, you see that there's a great deficit when it comes to the number of workers. The problem that we are facing is not the ripeness of the fields. It's the lack of laborers. And so what should we do, brothers and sisters? Therefore, pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christ has commissioned the 72 as his ambassadors to go and make him known. But what is their first order of business? It's to pray. It is to seek the face of God. Part of their mission includes gathering more co-laborers to their side to be brought in to go out then on behalf of the name of Christ. But how do you go about that task? What do you do when you're faced with the immensity of the need, all of these souls that are to be reached? You pray, you pray. This is where faithful gospel work always begins. It begins with prayer. It begins on your knees. You don't start with vision statements or strategic planning 
or committees or programs. You begin to pray. You begin to intercede. You begin to cry out to God for his blessing and his provision. There's this great opportunity. There's this great need. What springs to mind uh, in the mind of Christ that that need might be met? Prayer. Dependence on God. Something so basic and yet so indispensable to the work of the ministry, prayer. And I might lay some stress on the word Christ himself uses here in that passage where he says, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the, of the harvest. What does that mean? Pray sincerely, pray fervently, pray intensely, pray ardently, pray with all of your heart. Pray as, as some of our spiritual father, forefathers used to say, until you pray. Pray until you pray. Pray expectantly. Travail in prayer. We ought always to pray and not to lose heart, the scripture says. Oh, for more prayer in the household of faith. My house, Jesus said, is to be called a house of prayer. Prayer, brothers and sisters. Prayer is the great need of the hour. Prayer, more than anything, is what we need in the church today. It is the greatest work, the most significant need, the most vital, necessary duty of the church if we're to know any measure of the Lord's blessing on the work of our hands, prayer, prayer. You may feel like you have little to offer uh, the kingdom of God in terms of your talents, in terms of your gifting, one that's not true. But if you can pray, you have a great ministry. Uh, you have a great ministry to attend to, something God has promised to bless. So let us pray. Let us be a praying people. Pray that God would, would open wide doors of effective ministry for the gospel. Pray that the blessing of God would prosper the work of our hands. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly and see what God might do. So gospel ministry involves prayer. It also involves danger. Jesus changes metaphors in verse three. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You see, there's no whitewashing. There is no whitewashing of things here. This isn't like some of those old military uh, enlistment campaign posters where it's all glory and no grit. They don't show the hardship and the opposition and the danger and the toil and the snares. Jesus makes no pretensions about what you can expect as a follower of his, but we need an honest picture of what life lived for the Lord really looks like in a world that hates him, in a world that opposes Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is not just for the early church. 
This is not just for the 12 apostles or for the 72. The witness of the scriptures is that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we all know some measure of that, some measure of hatred and resistance from the world in our pursuit of Christ. In fact, the more that you pursue him, the more holy and single-mindedly your devotion toward Jesus Christ is, the more you can expect to experience of this. We'll all know some measure of resistance and hostility from the world. And yet we have this hope that if we endure, we will also reign with him. We will also reign with him. And so he gives them this dose of reality. If you look at verse four, he deals with ministry provisions. You might recognize some of these instructions from, from his dealings with the 12. Here he says, carry no money bag. No knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. In other words, travel lightly. Look to me for your provision. When he says greet no one on the road, uh, he is not saying be rude, uh, be discourteous. Rather, don't stop and dilly-dally. You have your marching orders from the Lord Most High, don't delay. Uh, greetings in the ancient world could take a lot of time. The same can be true in our day. Maybe you, maybe you, you have um, had a long list of errands to run someday and you're in the grocery store and you see someone you know down at the end of another aisle and you know they're a talker. And so you scurry this way. In a way, that's the mindset Christ is calling us to. There is to be a sense of focus and urgency to our work as followers of Jesus. There are many things in our lives that can prove to be sources of great distraction as we think about following Christ. Many of them are good things, not just sinful things, but, but good things, but things that prove to be distractions. So be careful not to let things throw you off course. Remember when Nehemiah was building the wall and there were certain enemies of Israel that came to him. They sought to steal him away from the task that the Lord had appointed him to. What did he say? He said, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Four times uh, he insisted on the same. That is the kind of attitude that followers of Christ are enjoined to have. Don't forget your objective. Don't forget what Christ has commissioned you to, to know the Lord and to make him known. Now, as they went out, each group of two was to announce peace. And where that that benediction was received, that house would know the blessing 
of the Lord, the blessing of the kingdom of God. If they didn't receive it, that would return to the the disciples. Where they were received, it says that they were to remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. There's no reason to feel uh, skittish about that. This is God's program. Those who... uh, Proclaim the gospel, should get their living by the gospel. Now, there's a, a necessary counterbalance to that right here in our text where it says, do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So if, if someone has shown hospitality to you and you are sitting there eating porridge, Praise the God of heaven. Praise him for his provision. Be thankful to God. And if you smell roast beef wafting out of the the neighbor's house next door, don't decide to drop by. Just be thankful with what God has provided you here. Don't treat ministry as a means of self-enrichment. So you have ministry provisions. Now, verses 9 to 11, you have ministry directives. Where there is hospitality, where you find that person of peace, where there's a harvest of souls to be reaped, and that town is ready to receive you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Announce the inbreaking of the promised Messiah's rule. Remember that they are going into every town and place where Christ himself was about to go. So the kingdom is near because the king is near. And it was accompanied, as you see here, by restoration and by healing and by peace, all things that point forward to the restoration of all things that is promised to you and I as those who belong to the kingdom of God. Now, the fields may be white for harvest, but as we've already indicated, Jesus doesn't make any bones about the fact that there's going to be rejection too along your way. In fact, it's not even stated as a warning or a heads up. It's just a matter of fact. If you look at verse 10, but whenever you enter a town, and they do not receive you. So you you see this too is going to be part and parcel of service in the kingdom of God. And beloved, rejection isn't a sign that you've done something wrong in your service to Christ. It isn't a sign that God's not with you or that you've missed your calling somehow. We follow after the pattern of our Lord hated and despised by men. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. As Christ approaches the cross later on, he tells the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In that context, he says that they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now, that obviously had a very particular application to the apostles. 
But we would do well to listen to the purpose statement that stands behind Jesus's warning there. This is from John chapter 16 and verse four. Jesus said, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. When it happens, you can remember. I said this was going to happen. It's a simple purpose, but it has such profound implications. If we forget that this is true, that that this comes with being ambassadors for Christ, opposition and rejection is part of heralding the good news of the gospel, we're going to be very confused when we encounter it. We're going to to begin to find ourselves very discouraged and dejected uh, when one does not receive, and we're going to be tempted not to open our mouth at the next opportunity. But on the other hand, if we take it to heart that this is part of our identification with our master, this is part of being united with Christ, we can press on. We can know what Jesus says a little bit further down in our passage, that if they reject us, really what they're doing is they're rejecting Christ. Ultimately, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting Christ. And if they reject Christ, ultimately, they're rejecting the one who sent Christ. They're rejecting the Father's redemptive purposes. Now, when they were rejected, they were to go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. You see the courage that is required here to actually draw attention to the gravity, to the, to the seriousness, the weightiness of rejecting Christ. They've rejected him. And you say, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Whether you receive him or not, the king of all creation has come. He has taken on flesh and blood, and he is here to reign. And you will answer him. Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You remember the significance of this action, shaking the dust from your feet from back in chapter nine. It's what the Jews would sometimes do when they came uh, back to their homeland from traveling in Gentile territory. It was a gesture of separation, of purification. Here it is used as a witness against those that reject the hope of the Messiah. You can see this very thing happening in Acts chapter 13, where Paul and Barnabas are preaching at Antioch and Pisidia. The whole city comes together on one Sabbath day, and they they hear the word of the Lord. Uh, God's uh, great gospel sounds forth, and there are many Gentiles who respond, but there are also many Jews there that day, all hearing the good news. Salvation has come to the ends of the earth. This is what it says. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were, as, as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout that whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city 
stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. You see, they, they, they shake off the dust. They take it for what it is. They issue that warning and then they press on and they look for further opportunities to continue to be vessels for the Lord's namesake. And that's the pattern for us. Well, that brings us straight into this next section, beginning with verse 12. Christ here calls our attention to a sobering reality, and it is one that has application not just for those ancient cities that rejected Christ during his earthly ministry, but to every soul that has ever been privileged to hear the good news of the gospel. I want you to look at verse 12, if you will. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. I have to believe that those words must have really made their blood run cold. That must have really rattled them. If you had ears to hear what the Lord Jesus was saying in that in that statement. And the reason for that, of course, is Sodom is that city that you would never want to hear spoken of in the same breath as your own hometown. It was the most notorious of Old Testament cities. Long before this passage was ever written, that name had become synonymous in the ancient world with judgment. And you can read about that in Genesis chapter 19, but you, you know the story. There was, of course, the issue of homosexuality. On top of that, and especially relevant in this context, was their lack of hospitality to God's appointed messengers. Now, I will hasten to add here that there are many who will, will tell you today that God's judgment on Sodom didn't have anything to do uh, with the issue of homosexuality, that it was their failure alone to show hospitality to those angelic messengers that came to that city. That is patently false. That is a clear perversion of the, or a, a perversion of the clear teaching of scripture. The book of Jude says that it is because of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah's indulgence in sexual immorality and the pursuit of unnatural desire that they serve to this day as an example of, of ongoing punishment in eternal fire. To just understand that, that's the the world, the cultural context that we live in today. Now, that being said, they did reject and attempted to abuse uh, these two angels and were consequently destroyed in judgment by the Lord. And so Sodom's name had over the centuries become a byword in the land of Israel. So to be likened to them meant you were in grave danger. Now, Jesus does something more than that here. He does something more than just liken those towns that reject the kingdom of God to Sodom. He actually says that it will be more bearable on that day 
speaking of the day of judgment for those towns, I'm sorry, for Sodom than it will be for those towns. It will be more bearable for Sodom than for those towns that reject the kingdom of God. I I ask you to just hold that idea in your mind as, as we look at what Christ goes on to say here. As we consider this next portion of scripture, the question I want to carefully, soberly consider is simply why? Why is that the case? Why will those who reject the announcement of the kingdom of God as it has been made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ face more severe judgment than Sodom? And then secondly, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? First, look at verse 13. Jesus calls out three Galilean towns here, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. This is where Christ's ministry had been most wonderfully, demonstrably visible. Uh, This is where his saving power had been most clearly, undeniably seen. This is where so many of his mighty works had been displayed publicly, uh, witnessed by so many great crowds. These are the cities who more than any other sat under his teaching. They heard the word of the, the kingdom of God declared over and over and over again. And yet, tragically, as you can see in our text here, they did not turn to Christ. They did not believe on him. They failed to listen. They heard, but they didn't listen. They saw many mighty things, but they didn't perceive with the eyes of faith who Christ was. They saw his glory, but they didn't repent. Now, dear ones, what I think is so instructive to see here in this passage is that the response of these towns wasn't violent. It wasn't hostile. They didn't openly persecute Christ. They didn't run Jesus and his disciples out of town. On the contrary, almost without exception, they were filled with awe at his mighty works. I'm not going to recount the whole history, but just a small sampling of Luke's divinely inspired record Chapter 4 and verse 36, a man is cleansed of an unclean spirit there, and they were all amazed. Chapter 5 and verse 26, Jesus heals a paralytic. Amazement seized them all, this great crowd. Chapter 9 and verse 43, Jesus delivers a boy from a a demonic power. The reaction of the crowd, all were astonished at the majesty of God. You see the pattern. These are, these are peoples who, when Christ taught, they sat and they listened. When he left one place, they would pick up and they would follow him to the next. They marveled at his miracles and the mighty works, but they did not repent. They didn't turn from their sin. They didn't hear and do the word. Overt profligacy and licentiousness wasn't the heart of the problem. 
It wasn't because of egregious, uh, jaw-dropping, tabloid-level kind of sin and depravity that caused Jesus to pronounce these kinds of woes. It wasn't because of sexual perversion or blasphemy. It was their failure to turn to him in repentance and faith. It was simple garden variety unbelief. Unbelief then, brothers and sisters, is a great sin. Unbelief is a great, great sin. And Jesus says something astonishing here in verse 13 as he speaks to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Now, what had happened in Tyre and Sidon? Those were idol-worshiping cities. They were Baal worshipers. Uh, Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Tyre. These were both port cities. That meant they were uh, exceedingly rich. They were both uh, very cruel cities, They were cities who, when at times the Jews uh, were running for their lives from their enemies, uh, Tyre and Sidon captured the Lord's people and handed them over. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos all go into great detail chronicling their their depravity and uh, prophesying God's judgment that would come against them. But mark in your minds what the Lord says here. Had Tyre and Sidon seen what happened in Chorazin and Bethsaida, had they witnessed the outpouring of Christ's love, his mercy, his goodness, his power, they would have long ago robed themselves in sackcloth, the coarsest of fabrics. They would have sat in dust and ashes, a picture of the deepest kind of humiliation. These Baal worshipers would have wept and mourned and rent their hearts before the living God. But Jesus says it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven, you shall be brought down to Hades. Now, a few lessons we can draw out here. First church, it isn't true that if skeptics and unbelievers could only see the sick healed, the demon possessed set free, the dead raised, that they would surely believe. This just isn't the case. It is entirely possible, as you see here, to witness all of that and yet remain dead in your trespasses and sin. Salvation is a work of God's grace within the heart. It is not just a matter of exposure to the things of God. The Spirit is the one who makes us alive. It is of the Father's mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that we are saved. The flesh, Paul says, is no help at all. No help at all. And so if by God's grace, you are able to perceive the things of the spirit of God, praise the Lord 
Give glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And if you have yet to place your trust in Christ for salvation from sin, cry out to him. Cry out to him for heart of flesh. Ask God for the gift of faith and repentance, and he will give it to you. He will hear your cry. He will grant that to you. Secondly, greater revelation means greater accountability. If there is one city in the history of redemption that's most renowned for its wickedness and its depravity, surely it is Sodom. But Christ says things will be more tolerable for them. Those that enter not into the kingdom of God by faith will have it more severe in the judgment because of the grace that has been revealed to them as deserving of wrath as Sodom was Chorazin and Bethsaida's sin was all the greater it was much greater the more light that we have the more is required of us the more God's grace is spurned the more guilt the impenitent heap up, the more wrath we store up for the day of judgment. Now, church, we must come to our own accounts here as we think about the, the principle that is spelled out in God's word so clearly here. We must reckon with our own accounts how much more so does this principle carry forward with us. As we think about the degree of revelation, the fullness of God's redemptive plan, the place we find ourselves in, we are those to whom the full revelation of God's purposes have been made known. If it was true that Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum's rejection meant greater accountability for them, how much more so is that the case for us? How much more so is that the case for those of us who have the privilege of knowing Christ's victory over sin and death at the cross, who know so well his bleeding sacrifice for us, who've heard proclaimed the glory of his resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of the majesty on high, to put it plainly, we are in a place of far greater privilege and therefore greater accountability than even them. The kingdom of God, as it has been revealed in the fullness of Christ's person and work, is the greatest treasure a man can ever know or possess. And to whom much is given, much will be required. In verse 17, the 72 return with joy. And they say, Lord, even the, the demons are subject to us in your name. The kingdom of God has made inroads into the kingdom of this world. The power of Christ has loosed many from those 
bound in demonic chains. And Jesus responds by saying, I saw Satan fall like like lightning from heaven. This can be taken a couple of different ways. First, it may be that Jesus sees in these exorcisms a small-scale preview of Satan's final demise. Uh, We're not talking here uh, about the final defeat of the devil. That will come with the death, burial, and resurrection, and ultimately the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus affirms here that when he, when he hears the disciples' enthusiasm, that he has given them this authority to tread on serpents, serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. You, you might remember in Acts chapter 28, where Paul is on the island of, of Malta, that he's bitten by a snake. Now, there is a, uh, uh, they, they, they kindle a fire there and out comes a snake and it latches on to his hand and the, the tribesmen there presume that he's a murderer uh, because of the, the evil associations that are attached to a serpent. Well, Paul shakes off the serpent. He suffers no harm, no misfortune comes to him. And so they decide that he's a God. They change their mind. Now, the point here in Jesus's words are, are not, first of all, that they were to look for opportunities to handle serpents and scorpions. You, you see that here. Uh, but that the wickedness that they represent wouldn't have any final decisive power over them. Neither should we take this to mean that they would never encounter any harm or face any affliction, or even ever be martyred for Christ's sake. Nothing ultimately, though, can ever do them any harm, Jesus says. Now, it is to be expected that the submission of demonic powers would get any of God's people a little bit revved up a little bit excited. You can't blame, that, blame them for that, but notice uh, what Jesus says here, looking at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't get amped up that the spirits submit to you. That is not what ought to animate us. That is not what ought to thrill our souls as the people of God. Christ's statement here seems to uncover the fact that there is in the the 72's excitement and exuberance a note of pride that the success of their mission has given opportunity to their ego and to a sense of self-approval that has now begun to to some degree, at least, uh, infect their heart. And this is a, a trap that is so easy to fall into as followers of Christ. Think of Samson. He can't resist sharing in the glory, uh, whispering in another's ear what God had done through him. Well, yes, God had done it through him, but there was, there was too much of Samson in that report. 
Like the 72, like Samson, we are prone as well to ooh and ah over the dramatic and the spectacular. We're prone to get more excited about power encounters and uh, miraculous reports and mighty works than we are our own spiritual regeneration. Friends, the submission of uh, demonic powers is not the basis of your joy. To put it another way, the source of your joy isn't what you've done for Christ, but what Christ has done for you. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? That's something to rejoice in. Is your name enrolled in heaven? By all means, glory in that. Is your eternity secure? And as much as that is true, you have a strong basis for joy. You have every cause to shout. And then look at verse 21. Jesus rejoices in the same. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Consider this. Jesus's joy was always as it should be. His heart only ever always rejoiced in what it should rejoice in. His affections and delights and enthusiasm was always oriented in a direction wholly pleasing to the Father. And what does the Lord rejoice in? Our Savior rejoices in the salvation of souls. He rejoices in God's gracious will to draw sinners to himself. Not only that, but he rejoices in God's divine program. He rejoices in the Father's way of bringing salvation to the world. He rejoices that God hides these things from the wise and understanding and reveals them to little children. We're talking about those wise and learned uh, from the perspective of the world. Those who in the, their, their pride are blinded to what little children are able to see. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Did he not say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and thwart the discernment of the discerning. First Corinthians 1, see if you can identify yourself here. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That 
is God's gracious will. That's his gracious will. Praise the Lord to save such sinners. Jesus says in verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son. Jesus says that he has all authority that the Father and the Son have intimate, exclusive knowledge of one another. No one shares the fellowship, the relationship, the love that they have, except, watch this, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Praise God. Anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And the son delights to reveal the father to those who come to him as little children with the eyes of faith. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Jesus has so many prophets and kings. And we could add saints of old and even angels have longed, to peer into what, by God's grace, we have been blessed to see and to hear. How blessed we are in the gospel. What manifold riches are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. What cause we truly have this day for rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, how we love your precious name. How we love you for your saving work through the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. God, we give you praise that by grace through faith, we are enrolled in the register of heaven, forever written down in the Lamb's book of life. God, this is all of your grace. You deserve all of the glory for what you have done. Praise the living God. Praise be to your holy, matchless name. And God, we pray that the, the preaching of the gospel and that the revelation of your son through your holy word would draw sinners in faith and repentance. God, we pray that the word of the gospel would be a means of grace and not condemnation. God, let the glories of Christ serve to bring everlasting joy, not judgment for every soul that is present here today. And Lord, we do pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, that you would send laborers. God, we ask your blessing on the work of the gospel here in this church. We pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would have uh, within us a deep, abiding desire to take hold of our God in believing prayer as we think about those harvest fields to which you've called us. Uh, we pray that we would pray earnestly and faithfully and intensely without ceasing. Your word says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Help us, Lord, to these ends. More than anything, God, we pray 
that your name would be glorified as we follow Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.